Hi there. Welcome to season two of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship coach, and the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my coaching services, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. Today's guest is Maria Brown. Maria is a geriatric social worker and an academic researcher, a sister and an auntie, who lives with her wife and their dog in upstate New York. She is also a founder and moderator of the Facebook group for lesbian cancer survivors and caregivers, which she started in 2007 during her second breast cancer, when she realized that lesbians were invisible in the existing literature and resources for women with breast cancer and other cancers. Maria has been cancer-free for 12 years. Maria, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You are so welcome. Why don't you begin by letting everybody know what you were diagnosed with and how old you were? Uh, both times or just the last time? Oh, both times. I didn't know there was a both times. You're like me. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's, let's start with the first time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 2002, I was diagnosed with uh, non-invasive ductal carcinoma, or um, they call it DCIS. It's really stage zero cancer. So that was treated with lumpectomies and radiation. And that was in my left breast near my armpit. And then five years later on a follow-up mammogram, they saw some irregularities in the same location. And they went back in and they... Um, well, they had to do biopsies on both breasts because there were regulators on both sides, but they did a biopsy of the same location on my left breast and they found a new cancer. This time it was an invasive stage one cancer um, because I had been treated by radiation already. They could not irradiate the same breast twice, so they had to amputate it. And I chose to have them amputate the other breast as well because of the irregularities found there already. And I didn't want to go through this anymore. So I had a bilateral mastectomy with reconstruction in January of 2008, followed by chemotherapy, four rounds of um, AC chemotherapy in March and April of 2008. And now it is 2020 in April. So you have gone 12 years. 12 years. Cancer-free. Congratulations. Ah, it's, it's Yeah, thank you. It's really blows my mind blows my mind that it's been 12 years or just what you've been through well what i've been through always blows my mind if i think (laughs) about it but that it's 12 years i mean in some ways it feels like a lifetime ago and other ways it feels like if i turned around i'd see it happening like right behind me in time like just yesterday you know it's very weird how time my relationship between time and the cancer treatment changes depending on what I'm focusing on, but I just, uh, I had, I was so afraid between the first and second diagnosis, I lived in constant fear of my cancer coming back. And I, I, in some ways I blame myself for making it happen because I was so obsessed with it. So the second time I just really tried super hard not to think about it, but I did have a certain amount of fear most days, but then I hit that 10 year mark and they took me off the tamoxifen and I sort of made this choice to just stop really thinking about it. And Mm -hmm. so I have a very different perspective on it now. And I just, 
I think I really was holding my breath even for those 10 years and convinced that something was going to happen, you know? I do know what you mean. I had the opposite experience in that when I was diagnosed, like I just was, I knew in my mind I was never going to have cancer again. Like this is going to be a one-time thing. And my confidence was unwavering. Well, that's not true. It wasn't unwavering, but I kept returning to a confidence that I knew I was going to be cancer-free, you know, following the first diagnosis. And then when I got my second diagnosis, that took my legs out from under me and yeah. had me recognize that I don't know what's coming down the pike and changed my relationship to a lot of aspects of my life. So you got to your 10 year mark, cancer free, and now you just kind of sound uh, like you're more relaxed. about Yeah. Everything, yeah? I mean, I still get my annual, I get an annual breast MRI and, but I started calling it a few years ago. I started calling it my annual, um, all clear MRI <laughs> instead of like, cause I used to approach it like with so much anxiety, you know, uh, scanxiety, how you just, the test is coming and you're so afraid they're going to find it. Oh yeah. And uh, I just started trying to reframe it in my mind to say, this is just my opportunity for everyone to say, yep, nothing's happening up there. <laughs> And I also understand that the majority of women who have breast cancer, uh, when they've, once they've had the bilateral mastectomy, the chances of the breast cancer actually returning in what, like three to 5% of actual breast tissue is left on you. It's very slim. It's really going to show up somewhere else, like your spine mm. or a larger bone or in your brain. And so you know, a person cannot second guess every headache or every backache or it, it's just, you just can't do that. So I just kind of focus still on the MRI as the indicator that I'm all clear, even though the chances of them finding it there are very slim. It's still my annual uh, confirmation that nothing has changed, you know? Yeah. And is where in the body does the MRI cover? Like what part of the body does the MRI cover? It covers cover? your breasts. So you lay, you lay on this table... <clears throat> on this foam structure, you lay face down and it covers from your armpit all the way to your other armpit, basically. And it goes as deep as the chest wall. So they can see like, usually if you have any breast tissue left, it's just cells on the chest wall because they scrape it all out when they amputate your breast. So usually there's just some left on the chest wall. So they would see it if it was growing there. So how did you... How in, in 2002, how was the breast cancer discovered? How did you, uh, what brought you to uh, the doctor's office? Well, I would say that I can credit my mother-in-law with that. She is gone now. She died in 2005 of Lou Gehrig's disease. But when I, I moved up here the year before, and at the end of 2000, and my wife was really, um, trying to get me to go into the gynecologist. I hate going to the gynecologist. I still hate it. <laughs> and um, so I, I waited for like a year and a half. I didn't go. And so I missed my annual appointment that would have been you know, my routine checkup. And I was like, I just, you couldn't get me to go. So finally, my mother-in-law said to her, you know, to hell with that, just make the appointment and then tell her to go. So she did. She called and made the appointment. 
And uh, my gynecologist believes in early mammogram to have a baseline. So once you hit 40, you start to have denser breast tissue. So she believes in people getting a baseline at like 35, 36. Mm. So I went in for my first appointment with her and she said, oh, I'm sending you down the hall to get your first mammogram. And I was like, I don't want to do that. They squish, they hurt, whatever. So she sent me down the hall and I had the mammogram. And while I was waiting in the little dressing chamber, they came back in and they said, we need to get some more magnified images on one side. So they sent me back into the machine again. And then they have to really squeeze it tight. It was very painful. And then um, they sent me back to wait. And then they came back in while I was still waiting there. And there's nothing more vulnerable than sitting waiting there in a, in a, like a medical gown. Mm-hmm. And they come in and they said, oh, there's an irregularity on your your MRI imaging, we see some microcalcification clustering that indicates you might have the beginnings of breast cancer. <laughs> you need to go back and make an appointment with your gynecologist will connect you to a surgeon. So I had the appointment with the surgeon the following week. It happened very, very fast. It was a very fast moving um, situation. I think because I was only 36, 35, actually, technically. So they, it was a young cancer, if it was a cancer. And, you know, and younger people, cancers are more aggressive. And so the response that my healthcare team had was more aggressive. And so I was in for a lumpectomy, like within a couple of weeks after that. And uh, I had a diagnosis, like less than a month after the MRI. So it happened really fast. Yeah, it sounds really fast. And thank yeah. heavens for your mother-in-law being so pushy. I know. Bless her. She really did save my life. Yeah. And certainly kept you from perhaps a far more, you know, a later stage, uh, more aggressive yes. treatments. Oh, sure. Because if you're not going to get your first MRI until you're 40, um, but I mean, we don't know whether or not stage zero cancers all become invasive cancers, although some of the evidence points to it's probably a pretty high probability that it will become an invasive cancer. So that's why they always want to remove it and treat it. But um, there's no way to know how long it would have taken for that stage zero to become stage one or how it would have developed or how aggressive it would be. The second cancer was considered to be potentially aggressive. So that one also could have been aggressive and I wouldn't have gotten my MRI for another four years. So it could have been a later stage by then. And, mm-hmm. you know, once you get into stage two and three, your chances of getting metastatic disease are much higher. So it was really, I was fortunate. Yeah, you sure were. And I'm obviously not a medical uh, pr- practitioner of any type, but I, my thoughts go to, okay, you went in and had, you know, stage zero cancer in 2002 and then in 2007, it came back as stage one. Like, it sounds like it. Like you're very fortunate that you found it at stage zero because it sounds like it was, uh, it had some staying power, I guess. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the doctors say that technically the two cancers are not related to each other. So the stage one was not technically a recurrence of the stage zero. They they just happen to be in the exact same spot, which is weird. Mm -hmm. And, um, but, but yeah, there's no way to know. Like it's for one thing, they responded very quickly to a a weird densification in my MRI in year five. And I think if it was my uh, first or second uh, 
mammogram in my life, they might not have reacted so quickly had I not had the cancer history, right? So that stage one might not even have been something they, they might've said, we'll watch it for six months and see if it changes. And by mm. then it could have been a stage two. So, I mean, it put me on the watch list, which really caught the first cancer, the second cancer early also. Yeah. Yeah. The mammogram, like I've spoken to a few women who've had breast cancer and spoke about their mammograms. And, you know, I, I'm really clear that being a man, you know, there are so many questions that I probably don't even think of that if a woman was, you know, interviewing you on a podcast, you'd get such different questions. I just want to acknowledge that, you know, for all of you who are listening, like, yeah, I'm sure I'm missing things. I, all I can do is follow my curiosity and there's a whole, you know, lifetime experience that I don't have to ask you, but I just think about the, the squeezing and I hear about the pain and just like, oh, like, come on, when are, when are different forms of, of scans going to be available that aren't like squeezing your breast and, and making it hurt so much? It's Right. Well, they do have different forms like uh, MRIs and ultrasounds, but the mammogram catches different things than an MRI catches. So mammograms are really good at catching these micro calcification clusters, which are indicators of stage zero or early stage one. So there, it's a good test and the technology is really good. It's just physically very uncomfortable, but it's only for a few seconds. Like it's just kind of, you just, it's a, you know, if you're a woman, it's just something you figure out how to tolerate mm -hmm. once a year. But there's a lot of debate going on about whether or not they're the most effective for, I mean, they're always talking about maybe the first mammogram shouldn't be until you're 50. Maybe it should be at 45. Maybe it shouldn't be every year. So there's always this debate going on whenever there's a new study that shows false positives or the high proportion of negative results makes people wonder whether women should have to go through it for no reason. But having had my life saved by a mammogram, I believe every woman should start getting mammograms at least at 40, probably in your 30s if there's breast cancer in your family. So my mom had breast cancer and I've had breast cancer. There's no genetic link. I've been tested for genetics. But I tell my niece who's 26 now that once she's 30, she needs to start having serious conversations about getting uh, mammograms. I was 36 when I was diagnosed the first time, and so it's recommended that my son start getting colonoscopies at 26. Wow. Yeah, and he asked me about that recently. Yeah, how old is he now? Is he like He's 18? 13. 13. 13. My, step, my stepson's 22. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, they keep going. That's crazy. I know. I mean, you speak about, you know, their, the different ages that they recommend mammograms and you know, what the insurance will cover, I think, is a lot right. of what that's based on. You know, 50 used to be the age to get your first colonoscopy. And they've since bumped it. Now they've bumped it back to 45. Right. And that also changes depending on your own personal health history. So mm -hmm. because I've had breast cancer, my risk of colon cancer is much higher. My risk of a lot of cancers is higher. So I had my first colonoscopy the year after I had my bilateral mastectomy. Mm. So I've had one, so I had one that was 2009. And then I had one uh, last year, 2019. 
and then I'll, I'm due for another one in like five years or something like that. Mm, it's so important that that information be out there that people know like what is the age to get scanned? What is the age to get scoped? Because someone like you, you know, so fortunate to uh, have had the the mammogram. <laughs> I'm thinking like, what is the word? People can't see the hand gesture that Bert is doing. It's a squishing between his finger and thumb. <laughs> squishing. <laughs> the mammogram. I'm going to have to go on uh, YouTube and see one because I have no idea what they look like. And I've heard so much about it. It sounds terrible. But the other thing you pointed to is that it's not a damaging pain. It's a... Right temporary uncomfortable pain yeah the, the hardest part is holding your breath while it's like two or three seconds but it feels like a lifetime when they're squishing you and you're holding your breath and and because mine was in my armpit uh they have to really squeeze me really hard like right below the armpit so it was like you know your armpit's a very sensitive area so but you know it's just temporary for the benefit you get yeah. For me, when I have my colonoscopy, I don't like to be medicated, you know, because now that I've been through two cancer surgeries and a minor back surgery, I mean, I don't know how minor a back surgery is, but either way, I don't like being medicated. Right. And so when I do my colonoscopy, I don't, you know, they don't medicate me. I just lay there and do a lot of deep breathing. Oh my God. And keep in mind, I don't have a rectum or an anus, so it might not be as painful for me as it is for someone or uncomfortable for me as it is for a person who is fully intact. I don't know because the only colonoscopy I ever had when I was intact, I was sedated, so I have nothing to compare it to. However, their primary recommendation is that I take deep breaths whenever the pain occurs. And for you to have right. to hold your breath yeah. While they're squeezing your breast. It's like, right. Because you're supposed to breathe through pain, right? And you can't. <laughs> but it's only for a few seconds. You know, I had my first colonoscopy. I woke up in the middle of it and, oh, my God, it was so painful. It was so weird. I can't imagine doing it awake. You woke up in the middle of it. I did. They very lightly sedated me. And so, and they said to me several times, they said, you know, if you wake up at all, just breathe and you'll go back to sleep. And so I was like. All right. And so when I did wake up, it was like I immediately started complaining about it. And they were like, just breathe, breathe. And I breathed deeply. And then I, I must have gone back to sleep. But it was very painful to feel that scope. Like, you, I don't know. I, I vote sedation. No, I mean, I definitely don't <laughs> recommend people uh, follow my path. <laughs> I, tell, right. I tell folks, you know, do what the doc recommends. When they get to certain points in the intestine, you know, they will turn the scope around mm -hmm. and it causes, you know, the uh, it, it, it puts a lot of pressure on the large intestine, you know, as, as they're yeah. kind of doing a 180 degree turnaround to rinse yeah. it out. And, you know, because they, they're going through and they're filling you up with air. And then they're, because uh, I, I watch them on the camera as they do it. I watch them on the monitor, excuse me. And, you know, they're, they're spraying water to clean out any of the bowel that wasn't cleaned out. And they're pumping air in there to expand it so they can move around. And uh, right. yeah, it's, it's certainly uncomfortable. 
for sure. But it's it's fascinating to watch if you're awake. But again, I'm not recommending anybody <laughs> do other than what their doctor recommends. I did see very briefly the inside of my colon when I was awake for those few moments. And the um, it was very pink. I remember it looking very mm -hmm. pink. And I said something like, wow, that's clean. And, and the doctor said, it, that's what a healthy colon looks like. Now go back to sleep. So... <laughs> It's always interesting when you can see what they're doing. It's like I had, I started having endoscopies the last year or two because I was having problems with my um, digestive system. And the, they definitely don't allow you to stay awake for an endoscopy because oh, they you do. got that. They do? I did. I had an endoscopy and I told them I wanted, I, I said, just give me a little Valium, a little sedation, but don't knock me out. Wow. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, I can understand why, you know, well, I mean, they let me, I think, because they were clear I wasn't changing my mind. But I will tell you, when you, I had an endoscopy and you burp and dry heave and gag all at the same time. <laughs> and it is just outrageous. And no, no, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not. Knock me out. <laughs> I don't blame I mean, you. good for you, but boy, howdy, no. <laughs> it, it, it's just from, you know, again, I'd had three major surgeries. I'd had minor procedures, you know, uh, to, you know, take the, uh, you know, like the port out. I also had a mm -hmm. chemo pump in my abdomen, and I just got so tired of spending the whole day doped up. Yeah. That... At this point in my life, I'd rather endure a lot of temporary discomfort than be doped up. Perhaps there will come a point in my life where I will be like, you want to know what? I'm over all that. <laughs> Knock me out. Right. I know I had 10 surgeries in a year and a half. Wow. Yeah, that was a lot. I mean, I had the biopsies and then the follow-up lumpectomies. And then um, they had to take out my lymph nodes, but they couldn't do my mastectomy until, so I was diagnosed at the beginning of December. And then I had to wait until the end of January for my mastectomy because I wasn't considered an emergency case. But I was so anxious about knowing if it was in my lymph nodes that they went in the day after Christmas and did a lymph node resection. And then I had the mastectomy and then I had revisions on the reconstruction. And then there was to get the port in and to get the port out for chemo. And then by the following fall, I was having, uh, no, a year later I had a hysterectomy, but before that I had three DNCs because my uterus was reacting to the tamoxifen. So all in all, in that one and a half year span, it was like 10 surgeries. That's a lot. It was a lot. That's a lot. But I don't want to be awake for any of those things <laughs> ever. Mm. I just am like, I'm one of those people. I know that's like eight hours where you're all groggy and it feels kind of crappy, but I just am so not into pain that I would just rather be sedated than yep. this. Completely I mean, understand. It's, it's just me, you know? Yeah. May I ask you about the reconstructive surgery? Sure. Was it a um, an implant or was it um, the one where they draw the, the tissue from the abdomen? They took the tissue and fat and blood vessels from my abdomen. And I actually had a revision on it last year, believe it or not. I was unhappy with the results on one side 
and I lived with discomfort for 10 years. And then after um, I stopped the tamoxifen, I had this realization maybe a year after that I'm really going to be living a long time with this. I should fix it. So I went in and I had them try to fix it last year. Can you say more about that? Like what this discomfort was and why you had the, re the revision? Sure. Um, let's see if I, if I can make it, it make sense. So your breasts have a certain shape and uh, part of that shape is the way that they hang. <laughs> and there's a curve to the bottom of your breast that makes it easy to stay in bras and makes it comfortable to be wearing bras. And on one side, my curve wasn't there. They tried to fix it like a year after the, re the reconstruction, they put in stitches to try to try to create scar tissue to build that curve, but the mm. stitches didn't hold. So it, the curve wasn't there. So wearing bras was uncomfortable. Often my bra would slip up on that side because there was not, no weight to hold it down. There was no curve and mm. weight to hold it down. So after like 10 years of that, I was like, I don't have to live like this. This is ridiculous. So I went in and they, they fixed it. They mostly fixed it. It's still not the same as the other side, but at least it's comfortable now. Okay. So the breasts are not the same, but it stays in the bra and it's comfortable and you no longer have the issues you had. Yeah. And I, yeah, I don't have to wear a bra so tight that it hurts to try mm. to keep one side up. So it's better. But um, I mean, the guy who did my breasts is the best plastic surgeon in my area for breast reconstruction, but he's the only can do so much with the material he's got. So nothing is going to be the same as it was before. I think that when I chose to get the reconstruction, I thought that it would be th that I would end up being the same as I was before. So I'd feel normal, like my own self. Cause I couldn't imagine not having breasts at all, mm -hmm. but, um, in retrospect, 12 years later, if this happened to me today, I would have said, just take it off and leave it off. And I would just deal with that because there is no returning back to the way you were before. It doesn't matter if you can physically look like it with your clothes on, you still are in your body underneath those clothes and it just doesn't feel the same. I have no sensation in most of my chest and abdomen because of all the um, damage to nerve endings and stuff. It's completely derailed intimacy for me. It's just, it, it may not have been worth it, but the, for the pursuing the illusion that I would feel like my old self again, because you never feel like your old self again. You know that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I don't know. I, I don't think it matters where your cancer was. That part of your body is not the same to you after you've had cancer. Yeah. Would you adjust your collar so it doesn't rub against the microphone? Is that what's happening? Mm -hmm. That little scratchy sound. Yeah. I mean, this is. Well, I don't hear that sound in my oh. headphone. I wonder. Okay. No, it's got to be. Well, it's coming through. <laughs> it's okay, though. So um, that's better. Thank you. Um, sure. So you lost sensation in the chest and the abdomen. So from where they. Right. Where they extracted the tissue from? Uh, <laughs> I'm getting into cut. personal stuff. We don't have to. No, 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 not at all. They removed five inches of my abdomen, all the tissue for five inches. They had to re they had to remove, relocate my belly button and reconstruct my belly button with scarring. So everything was uh, like when I first came home from the surgeries, I couldn't stand up straight because I had to stretch my abdominal skin 
five inches. Uh, and that mm -hmm. took a few months before I could stand up. I had exercises to do and stuff like that. But um, back then they didn't send you to physical therapy. Now they would send you to physical therapy. So I had to manage uh, that at home. Interesting. Yeah. I had that as well when they cut into my abdomen both times. It was, uh, it took a while. Yeah. It took months before I didn't have to get up slowly and allow the muscles and the and the scar tissue to right you know relax. Yeah. Hmm. I still have it's twelve years later, and I still if I gain a certain amount of weight, my abdomen if everything pushes on the scar tissue. I have a scar from one hip to the other, and the scar tissue gets uncomfortable, and so I have to stay below a certain weight or else I'm just very uncomfortable. Oh my goodness. The things that people would never think of. I know. I know. Yeah. And it's not, and they don't warn you about all of them. They don't. And even if they did, I think there's a certain mindset you're in when you're going between diagnosis to surgery that they can tell you lots of things, but you can't really let them stick in your brain because it's just too much. You know, yes. yes, there's so much information and all the side yeah. effects they speak about and all the I mean, if they really told us all the possible side effects and all the potential issues, like it would just your mind couldn't possibly hold it. And you, you know, it, yeah. really, it really is just kind of like a, like one of those kids create your own adventure books. <laughs> <You're, Right. laughs> Your body right. creates its own adventure and it decides right. what works and what doesn't. Mm. Yeah. And so now you still have the uh, mammograms with the reconstructed tissue, I would imagine. No, I have MRIs because you can't, you can't uh, squash reconstructed tissue. So okay. women who have breast implants or women who have um, uh flap or tram reconstruction. So some women get it from their back um, and some women get it from their abdomen. It depends on if you have to do one or both sides and how much fat you've got. But none of those reconstructed breasts can be squeezed in the mammogram machine because the, the tissue won't rebound. It won't come back to its original oh. shape. So you risk, and you risk damaging transplanted blood vessels and stuff. So they just do MRIs for you after that. And maybe ultrasounds, but usually MRIs. That sounds nice. It's it's less painful for the few seconds, but I gotta <laughs> tell you, every year you're going in, you're getting an IV for contrast. Mm. The contrast Ugh. every time, every time it goes into my veins, I taste it in my mouth, and my initial reaction is to want to throw it up. Mm. So I have to ride that out face down in a claustrophobic space with really loud sounds going around you and you're trying not to hurl. <laughs> it's, it's a very uncomfortable experience. It's like 40 minutes you spend in there. And then I have about 24 hours that I feel very sluggish and yucky from the contrast until my body can metabolize it out. I have to drink a ton of water. Um, and it's just, it's just an unpleasant day. It's an unpleasant day. Okay, that does not sound nice. <laughs> no. <laughs> I smell no, by comparison is like it's over and you're mm. it's painful and it's over but an MRI is just a long sluggish kind of day yeah 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 I uh I smell the contrast when they inject it 
I taste it, I smell it, it's disgusting. And I started having a tingling tongue and lightheadedness after my annual scans. Oh. So my doc prescribed uh, Benadryl and steroids. And finally, you know, last December with my last scan, uh, it was, I turned to such a wacky person on those steroids and Benadryl mm -hmm. that when the next one comes up in December, I'm going to request they reduce the dose. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my doc's a pretty tough cookie, but uh, I am going to push <laughs> and say, look, what can you reduce it to? Because I imagine, I don't know if she's going to say yes or no, but I, I have to have it reduced because it's too much. It's like, yeah. It's, it's like I'm vibrating from all those drugs. And, and, uh, and the contrast, you know, never felt good. No. And I think over time it affects me more and more. I think you, your body starts to have, like, it sounds to me like you're starting to have almost an allergic kind of reaction to the contrast, which is why the Benadryl and the steroids. And, uh, I think that that's inevitable your body. It's just a foreign substance in your body and your body's going to build up a resistance to that substance. So I'm just waiting for those kinds of things to happen to me, but I just try not to think about it too much because mm -hmm. it's something I feel like I need to do. And I know that the older I get, the greater the likelihood that my insurance company at some point is going to refuse to cover them because the, uh, well, the further I get out from having it, the risk of recurrence probably decreases statistically, but also the older you get, the less time a test like that buys you with early diagnosis. So women in their seventies are getting refused for um, at breast MRIs because it's a, it's a numbers game. The insurance company's playing a numbers game with them, with their lives, but I'm only in my fifties. So I don't know how long it'll take before they start to refuse me, but it's a very expensive test to get done without insurance. Yeah. I just, it's so hard to hear that people get denied testing. Yeah. The only thing that really is annoying is that the way that they decide what the cost benefit analysis is for you as a cancer survivor, oftentimes they'll say only get this initial test and we won't get a more thorough test until later. And then when the initial test is negative and your symptoms aren't gone, they'll do the more thorough test anyway. So I never understand that. Like if, why not just give me the more thorough test the first time? and save us all some time and money and me the anxiety of waiting and then waiting again for some sort of indication, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I would think that, you know, like you said, it is a numbers game. It sounds like you're saving money if you're not having to cover people's treatments, but if the number of treatments they have to cover goes down and therefore it's less expensive to simply deny coverage. Right. I, uh, uh, it just makes me sick. I know. Me too. I would love it if our insurance system were to be transformed into something more uh, human-oriented, not numbers-oriented. To me, it, it calls to mind that whole feeling when you're first diagnosed with cancer that suddenly you're aware of your own mortality. I mean... I remember I was so freaked out my first time around that my mother-in-law gave me this book by Pima Chodron called When Things Fall Apart. Yes. And um, she basically talks about how this 
idea that you have any control over your life is an illusion. And that's why you're freaking out about it. But really, if you can embrace knowing that this has always been true, that you've never had control, um, that you can find some peace in that and you can focus on the other things that are more important. So, but it is kind of like a wake up call again to say, oh, I still have no control over my own mortality. I still, the world is still a chaotic place. I've been embracing this illusion and I have to shed it again and again and again. Life keeps bringing things to remind you that you are no more certain than, and no one else is more certain than you either. They just haven't had that, those diagnoses to really highlight for them how vulnerable they truly are. Yes, we have no certainty in life and we live under the illusion that we do. I was on a Zoom call for people who have uh, participated in a certain uh, program, seminars, and uh, what they pointed to is that we've never had certainty in our lives. We live under the illusion that we have no certainty. And what I took away from that was that, oh, exactly what you said. I never have had certainty in my life, but I live like I do. If I'm willing right. to take on that I have no certainty and I never have, then really nothing has changed. Right. And I can just you know, return to center and to peacefulness. And I put the word return in there because it's so clear, you know, that's part of our uh, awareness in, for all of us in some aspect of life is returning to center. And then the mind wanders and we get concerned and we worry and then we return right. to center. You know, my bank balance got very low and then the stimulus check was sent to me and now I can breathe. And I knew that, you know, there are people who love me and no one's going to let me, uh, you know, just go homeless. I mean, heck, my landlord's a wonderful person, you know, so yeah, I don't have to have that concern, but the mind still wanders and, it, and it's just a back and forth. And, you know, when you get diagnosed and then, you know, and then you're cancer free and then you have an ache in your body and you wonder, what is that? Could it be cancer? Because it's been around right. for a while. And you know, just noticing those patterns of how we worry and wonder and then we find out it's nothing to worry about or we yeah. worry and wonder. And then we discover, Oh, it's just this. And just, I feel like as I get older, you know, I'm able to see these patterns and I get to a place of anxiety and worry and, f or fear. And then I return to what's so, <laughs> and, uh, this is a worldwide practice, at least for, you know, most countries right now is a, it is a yeah. practice of returning to what's so. Right. And, uh, it, it's been really something else. Yeah, and I think a lot of people have to really, probably for the first time, grapple with this concept of living just in the day, one day at a time, right? So I have a history of addiction. So for me, this is something I'm always trying to practice all the time because I project into the future really quickly and I can uh, have a lot of catastrophic thinking if I allow my mind to be undisciplined. Uh, when I'm in feeling fear or anxiety. And I think that a lot of people may, may not have had those struggles in the past because they don't have similar issues. And so it's really for all of us, a one day at a time living right now. And I, it's funny, I was listening to my county executive talking during one of his briefings the other day. And he was like, you know, a lot of people are calling me freaking out because they just extended the stay at home to mid April. And he's or mid-May, but he's like, you know, if you think about it, we were going to be on this until at least the end of this month. So 
be in the now, you were still going to be doing this social distancing, whether we change the end date or not, just live where you are, you know, like it's not, nothing would be different today either way. So don't freak out. There's no need to freak out. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, tell us. Now the politicians are telling us to live in the moment one day at a time. Oh my goodness. You know, like don't project into the future. Mm -hmm. It's hard. It's, it's a hard for someone who's not been disciplining their brain in this way to think about living in the moment, but planning for the future. Because the tendency is when you're planning for the future is to project out to what's possibly going to happen. That's what we think of as like an inherent part of planning. Imagine all the possibilities and then plan for all the possibilities, but that really can make you crazy. Like all you can do is say, well, this is what I know today. And this is what I'm going to do about the future today. And then the rest of it is up to something else, right? Yeah. Whatever that is, current events, the changing winds, the whatever you want to call it, but you can only control so much. So. And having dealt with addiction, that is some part of the thinking that is brought to difficult circumstances is to just be in the now. Yeah, here, this is where you are. So what do you need to do to be okay here where you are? I mean, there's certain things you have to do, like, you know, you need a job, you have to plan to go on the job market, you have to write your resume, you have to look for jobs, but the addicted mind will be like, already trying to plan out the interview for an interview they haven't been invited to yet because they haven't sent in their resumes. Like we go way into the future and try to predict all possible scenarios because we think that'll prepare us, but it really just makes us crazy <laughs> to try to think that way. So I think this is a perfect example. Like you can't determine when you get to go back into business. So all you can do is like manage your finances today, right? Do what you can do today. Control what you have control over and try not to obsess about all the rest of it. And I think everyone in everyone in every country that's doing this social distancing is in the same position. Yes. Right? Yes. You can't like you you cannot know how much toilet paper you're gonna need six months from now. So it's crazy <laughs> to go out and buy enough toilet paper. <laughs> but yet people did it, right? But you know, we, we think that way all the time. Like have to plan my Instacart shopping a week in advance because that's how long it takes for me to come up in the queue for them to bring me my groceries. So I have to know what my general grocery needs are, but I can't, I can't predict everything. So I just have to be okay with possibly running out of something in the future. Yeah. I mean, we're so used to this world where we can have whatever we want whenever we want it that we just have to kind of adjust our thinking. I mean, when I was going through treatment, I read this book by this woman who was a chaplain and a breast cancer survivor. And she said that one of her biggest lessons during treatment was she had to hold her plans very loosely in her hands. Like she might think today I'm going to go to work and I'm going to put in my usual hours, but at any moment that could be ripped away from her and she might feel too exhausted and have to go home. And so I tried that thinking when I was going through treatment and I sort of still hold on to it, this idea that like, I can make plans, but life might have a different idea of what's going to happen to me today. And I just have to be ready to switch directions and be flexible and not waste a lot of my energy on trying to control all that and trying to, because it's just not, the world is not controllable like that. When this first started, I really thought that having had cancer would have, you know, I thought it had prepped me for living in uncertainty. <laughs> and it did not prep me. <laughs> it, <laughs> I, uh, 
had a really tough couple of weeks. You know, the first two weeks that I was not working and I was home, I was walking two to five miles a day just to, you know, keep the anxiety down. Right. It was difficult. I still walk about two miles a day for that. Uh, you, you need to get some fresh air. It's one of the things I learned when I was going through radiation on my first cancer. I had to take a daily walk. I had to practice looking up at the sky, noticing the birds, thinking about the um, unlimited possibilities, positively, the unlimited possibilities, you know? Yeah. Um, and then also planning for the future. Like I remember when I was going through chemo, I had a, a treatment coach that my oncologist hooked me up with. And she would call me every Sunday and we would talk about how things were going and how was I feeling. And one of the things that she reminded me of every week is like, how's your long-term plan coming? Like I was, I was planning a trip to Maine for like six months after the end of chemo for my birthday, because I thought birthdays suddenly become this big thing to be celebrated that you get to have one, yeah. right? After you've been spending your time thinking about the things you're trying to do to avoid never having another birthday, so I was planning this trip and every week she'd be like, how are the plans going? And what are you looking forward to? And then she would kind of bring me back to like, what are you looking forward to in the next month? Like, what are you looking forward to in the next week? And then what, what are you going to do tomorrow? That'll be good. You know? So I could think about there's things that I can do that can be positive, even while I'm in the middle of this chemo experience, which is just uh, unimaginable until you go through it. You know, you know, I do. I do. And I love that you had that kind of support uh, planning for your future. When I went through my first diagnosis, you know, I knew that there was somehow I was going to be a contribution to the world through this experience. And I started writing my blog, as you know, right. And you kept a blog and, you know, I had people like following me from every continent at one point. Other than Antarctica, I don't believe anybody, perhaps, but <laughs> Google Analytics didn't include Antarctica in the, in, in the Yeah, results. those penguins don't really have internet. <laughs> <laughs> or they would have followed you, I'm sure. I'm sure they would have. And, you know, that gave me a sense of purpose and the difference I was making. And then uh, during my second diagnosis, I would get chemo every two weeks. And there was a point where my band was playing about once a month up in my hometown and you know we would play a show from uh, 9 p.m to midnight on a friday night and we would just there'd be four of us just playing with everything we had you know it was blowing the roof off the place the crowd was having a blast and uh it meant so much to me and it gave yeah. me something to look forward to and uh that kept me feeling good and feeling positive and, 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 and you know, and uh, having passion, you know, flow through me. Now, do I know if it made a difference in my results? I have no idea. But what I right. can tell you is my experience of the circumstances were far more, it was far more enjoyable. I found them easier to navigate when I had something to look forward to that I was excited about. You know? Right. And it's so important. Uh, you, so you said you took daily walks during the radiation. Like, what did that provide you? Being able to, see, you know, looking at the sky and hearing the birds and. Well, 
I remember my brother who um, said once to my mom, my mom struggled with depression and he said to her once, you know, when you look up, it lifts your mood. He had read it somewhere. Mm -hmm. So I was, I would practice walking and looking up and noticing it was fall. So I would notice the changes in the leaves, the color of the leaves. I'd, I'd walk around this business park where my office was. And I would just kind of listen to uplifting music on my headphones and look up at the sky and take time to notice if the birds were singing. And sometimes I would make myself whistle because whistling always makes you feel a little bit better. Mm, you know, it's hard yeah. to be depressed and whistle. So um, I was doing this acting as if thing that we talk about in 12-step recovery a lot too. Like act as if you're feeling better. Act as if you are a successful person. Act as if you uh, have an uplifting mood. So I was doing that kind of stuff just, and it worked. I mean, it helped me kind of stay above the pessimism and the fear and be a little more optimistic about what I was going through. I also did these visualizations during radiation where I would visualize it was white healing light coming into me. And I don't know if that helped or not, but that's what I would do. I would visualize that it was healing light and I would uh, practice being uplifted during my walks. Cause otherwise I was getting bogged down in anxiety and fear. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, visualizing um, visualization. I found really helped me. It just relaxed me. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a lot of pressure that people put on cancer patients. You know, you've got to stay positive and oh. positivity is the key to success. And I don't know that positivity is the key to success. I know that positivity is the key to being positive. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, that, and you can have, I mean, I run a support group for um, lesbian cancer patients and their caregivers on Facebook. And I, I mentioned quite often, you'll have someone on there writing about how they're having a very bad day and they're trying to hide it because they don't want anyone to think that they aren't doing their best to stay positive because you're supposed to stay positive. It's supposed to help your recovery or whatever. And I will say to them, I remember going into my clinical social worker at my oncologist practice because I was struggling with depression during chemo. And she said to me, you know, you can have a positive attitude and still have a crappy day. Like you can have negative emotions while you're being a positive person. Positive people are not without pain or grief or sadness or whatever. So you can do both those things. Like letting, your, letting yourself have those feelings doesn't mean you're abandoning your attempt to be a more positive, optimistic person. Good for you. She's so fortunate to have you supporting her and all of them because I couldn't agree with you more our feelings arise right like we don't you know we can sometimes you know generate a certain feeling but there are feelings that arise that we don't have any say over you gotta and, just go have them and allow them and yeah I, one of my values is it a value i'll put it a different way um it's very important to me to have full, free emotional expression in my life. And when I am sad, I am going to be sad. And when I'm mad, I'm going to be mad. And I'm not going to let it take me over. And when it does take me over and I start going down, you know, into the depths of my imagination and it gets dark and scary, I return myself back to what's so, mm -hmm. but the emotion can still be there. And I feel it's so important 
to express emotion, whether you're laughing or you're crying, uh, wherever you are, it, it, living a positive life it does, you know, and, and, and thinking positively does not mean not expressing your emotion. It's right. To me, it means returning to a place of gratitude for what I have. And I can't return to a place of gratitude when I'm pretending that I'm happy and when I'm faking being happy. Now, I, I don't want to suggest that, you know, you're uh, the um, acting as if doesn't work because, you know, that's valuable as well. But what I'm saying is when my life is being lived, fully expressed, letting myself experience whatever I'm experiencing and knowing that I'm going to return to, right. you know, to gratitude. And when I, I can't return to gratitude if I'm pretending and if I'm faking it, it will just, it will then have me, it will have the reins. And when right. I just allow the emotions to be, sometimes I just sit down and cry, you know, and then I can return to gratitude. But if I try to fake it, if I try to not fake it, if I try to skip over the emotional expression, it grabs a hold of me. Like on, I don't know if you know, but those of you listening, uh, Maria is a friend of my mom. I think, I don't know if you do you still both go to the same church. That's how you met, right? Fell. She, re she on Friday, you know, late, late Thursday night, you know, Friday morning, like 1 a.m., she fell. She broke her femur. And so she's in the hospital on Friday morning. An ambulance took, there, took her there. I couldn't be with her. My stepfather couldn't be with her. That's uh, hard. That's it's hard. really hard. And then the next day on Saturday, she had the uh, titanium rod and a couple pins surgically implanted, inserted, I guess. And then when I found out she was doing well, I received another text from my sister or a call from my sister. And she said that our stepmom is now in the hospital and has to have a heart procedure. Oh, my goodness. And she's been in my life since I was seven years old or maybe eight. I don't recall, but. You know, both of my moms are in the hospital. There's COVID-19 all over the place. And Maria, I just burst into tears. Right. And I went on social media and said, both of my moms are in the hospital right now. Like, I just want to wrap my family in bubble wrap. This is too much. And I wasn't going to write it because I realized I was writing it to get, you know, the attention and support of my community. And then I thought to myself, Buddy, we're going through COVID-19. All of us are pretty much at 50% emotional, emotionally full to begin with. You know what I mean? We're already right. at 50%. And now both of your moms are in the hospital. They're both dealing with, you know, at my mom's age at 83, you know, that's a life-threatening situation when you, when you break a bone after that kind of surgery, plus possible exposure to the virus. Right. My stepmom with the heart issue and having to have a procedure if not surgery and possible exposure to the virus like I wasn't just full I was overflowing mm -hmm. and it was I really got like I'm gonna ask for support I'm gonna acknowledge that I'm struggling and I'm not gonna try to distinguish what's so from what's happening right now I'm just gonna let this emotion pour out and I did a lot of crying right and what I, else can you do in that sort of scenario yeah. but have your feelings I ordered some crappy food <laughs> <laughs> and I watched some TV and I allowed it. And the next day I felt better. But, you know, I really got in that moment, like sometimes you just let it be and let right. it express. 
and I feel better. And I've spoken to both of them on the phone every day. And it's hard. And, you know, they're both, they're both strong women. My dad married a couple strong women, you know. He's got a type. Who knew? Yeah, who knew? And they're, and they're doing really well. But it, my point being, you know, when the emotion arises, as we're navigating our diagnosis, as we're navigating, you know, uh, post-diagnosis uh, survivorship, these things come up. And when we try to control them, it's a losing battle. And when, when we allow it to express, it won't reveal itself down the road, at least, you know, in the sense that, you know, when we bury things, you know, they find their way out. <laughs> right. Well, and, and plus then you're, I, for me, when I try to resist having the feelings that are coming up, I just, I make them last a lot longer. They undermine my happiness for like a whole day, two days, however long I try to put them off. Whereas if I let them out, then I can get past the feeling to understanding what's causing the feeling. And then I can deal with that. And then I can feel better sooner. I mean, it's uh, for me, it's all about, you know, managing how long I allow myself to suffer. And we have a saying in the AA that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And the way you cope Amen. with the pain can minimize how much you have to suffer from the thing that caused the pain. And so, I mean, I was just saying to my, my wife uh, the other day, I used to have this a therapist when I was anorexic who said to me, you know, the problem you're having is eating your dinner because your emotions are in the way of your eating. So if you could let your emotions out before dinner, you might actually be able to eat your food. Hmm. And so I would plan time to just have my feelings. I'd put on music. I'd let my feelings out, my fear, my pain, my grief out. And then I would have an easier time eating my food. And I said to my wife the other day, you know, maybe I need to go back to this kind of structured, let the feelings of the day out because they just keep building up day to day mm. because this, this crisis, this COVID-19 crisis just keeps evolving. And I keep having because I'm a human, emotional reactions to its evolution, right? So I, I don't watch the news very often. I don't read social media for more than a few minutes at a time. And I try to make room for my feelings so that I can feel more mentally relaxed at the end of the day, or else I have sleep disturbances. And then the next day, I'm just worse than I was the day before. I love that practice. That's wonderful. It sounds so simple and yet it's not really easy to do, <laughs> yeah. but, but, uh, but it's important. I think if you don't, if you don't let your feelings happen and try to manage them by stuffing them down, you're right. They come out in other ways. They interfere for longer and they overall make me just more miserable than I have to be. Yeah. And, and what your practice has me think of is the fact that again, we are not in control our right. minds and our bodies, they respond to what is happening in the world and they will, you know, precede our awareness at times and, and take us down certain paths. And, and that the practice you speak of is acknowledging, you know, I'm not in control, but I can prepare for, you know, what life's patterns have shown me. And I can, you know, you're, you're creating your life around 
how your mind and body are operating and not trying to be like the one in charge, but like really getting like, it's kind of like a partnership. Right. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love that. Uh, would you care to let everyone know about your uh, support group for, it was a support group for lesbian cancer survivors. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a Facebook group. It's called lesbian cancer survivors and caregivers is what it's called. Wonderful. Yeah. Did so you create that group. I did. I created the group because, um, in 2007, when I was diagnosed the second time, I went looking for books about lesbian cancer experiences and there were like none. So there are some really great memoirs written by heterosexual women who have breast cancer. And those were really helpful to me. But when you're, when you're a sexual minority or any kind of minority really, and you're reading the experiences of people from the majority group, you sort of have to edit everything. So like, you know, this yeah. one, um, this one book I read, which was what it's not about the hair, I think it was called by it was by the chaplain who had had breast cancer. And she was married to a man. And so I would just kind of have to in my mind edit when she said my husband, I would just in my mind say my wife, but it gets tiring to have to always do that in life, you know, and, mm. um, and survivors support groups for women with breast cancer are predominantly run and serve heterosexuals and they focus on very heteronormative things like so the american cancer society has this great group for most women called looking good feeling better but it focuses on how to make yourself look better like makeup and wigs and um that's not my way that i function in my real life so i wouldn't in cancer go now i'm going to be wearing makeup every day and i'm going to also put on fake hair i was more like a I have no eyebrows. That's what my face looks like kind of a person. And, uh, and most lesbians are not into that sort of heteronormative box of makeup and wigs. So there was really nothing out there for a lesbian with breast cancer. Very few lesbians, you know, have had it. And so it's not like you can even structure a support group with your local community because you're talking about one in eight women have breast cancer in their lifetime. And then only like, 10% of those might be lesbian or bisexual. So we're like a very small wedge of society. Yeah. So I started this group on Facebook. The first few years I had five people in it, a woman in Canada, uh, a woman in New Zealand, a woman in Michigan and a woman in Buffalo and me. And uh, then after like about the fifth or sixth year, the woman in Buffalo said, you know, you really should try to be more aggressive about promoting the group. So I started going to like every Facebook book group I could find that had anything to do with cancer of any kind, because originally the group was for breast cancer. And then we said, we'll broaden the definition to all cancers and we'll make it open to caregivers too. And I went to all these Facebook groups for all different kinds of cancers and I I would put a, a post in the discussion, you know, we have this group. If you're a lesbian, you can come here. If your partner is helping you, she can come here. And so that's how I started growing the group. I have like 175 women in it now. Um, mm. So it really has grown a lot. And we always have at least five or six people newly joining in active treatment. And so it allows the people who are longer term survivors to kind of share our experience strength and hope with people who are first dealing with it. Um, and we have some women who join who are years out from their cancer, but suddenly have a crisis that sort of throws them back into that fear. And so we have tips we share with them for how we manage those things. Um, and then we have widows come on 
And we have a great group of caregivers who are also widows who give them a lot of really good support around coping with the loss. So it's, it's been a blessing really for me. And I, I struggle sometimes because it's this daily reminder of the horrors of cancer that I sometimes wish I could just forget. But um, I have two other people who are administrators. And so we all kind of take time off when we need and the other nice. two pick up the slack. And so we don't have to worry about that. So it's a good group. I really love doing it. It sounds great. And it's wonderful that you have a few administrators and you give yourself space to step away. I was on a social media, you know, I, I was on a cancer social media uh, page years ago called Planet Cancer. And uh, I was talking to one of my guests about it. It's where he and I met. And uh, he was such an inspiration. But there were times I would get on there and be like, I can't do this today. I, I right. can't hear one more story. This heartbreaking diagnosis, you know, and the circumstances yeah. built up. It can be so much. And the fact that you can step out while you, you know, while you're taking care of yourself because other people are in there doing the same thing. Right. Uh, and I can also, I can also post if I'm struggling and I get wonderful support from the women in that group. And, you know, there are days like, I might hear somebody that I know loses somebody to cancer or something. And, you know, some days I can just be really supportive of that person in their loss. And other days I'm just so angry that the loss had to happen to anybody that I need to go to a place where everyone in the group understands why I'm so triggered by that. And that, that cancer support group is that place that I go hmm. for that because hmm. they all understand, you know, mm -hmm. they all understand my feelings. I don't have to explain to them why, because some people who've never had the experience of cancer might be like, can't you just, you know, not get so upset about it? Or can't you just be more removed, like intellectually remove yourself? And I'm like, my, my heart doesn't work that way. Yep. And my heart carries a scar. And sometimes reality irritates the scar on my heart and I need some place to go. So, yeah, there are those of us who feel deeply with all that we do. Yeah. And there are some well, that don't. We, yeah. all, we all have our role in our place. Right. And I also think that if you have never had cancer yourself or had someone close to you go through treatment, you just don't really understand that experience the same way. And you also don't understand how traumatizing that experience can be and that it never really is over. Cancer is never really over because you always have these reminders of the possibility of recurrence, either your annual scans or you may have other health issues that arise and you can't go to a single doctor's appointment without telling them about your cancer history. So it's really kind of up in your face in all <laughs> kinds of ways. And your body is different and you're, and those things that happen to your body don't ever not happen to your body, right? Like I always see when I look in the mirror that my breasts are not the originals. Yeah. There's no way to not see that. It's like I have a little um, a scar where my chemo port was. Mm -hmm. And so for years, it was, a, for me, a reminder of that horrible experience. And then it started fading. And I didn't like that either. So I got a tattoo on it. Ah. So, so I'm like, obviously, I don't mind the scar. And I actually need the, it's, it, for me, it's like a reminder of my survivorship, right? That this happened. It's gone, but it happened. And I, I honor that happening even as I'm trying not to let it run my life. But people who've never had a, a serious, seriously life-threatening illness like cancer don't know what that feels like. Mm -hmm. 
And I pray they never do, yeah. you know? Yeah. But I need people in my life who have had it so that I can go to them when I need support around that part of my experience that only they understand. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I have a uh, huge scar from my sternum all the way down to my pelvis. I have the port scar. I have chemo pump scar in my abdomen and I have my colostomy. Like I don't, right. it's always present dealing with it every single day. Like, and, and, and it's just, uh, it does create a familiarity uh, that can make my relationship to cancer a little easier for some reason. And then there's times I hear about someone's diagnosis and it brings me right back and I just shudder. Right. And you know, making space for that. Again, like, you know, some, some of us humans, we really deeply feel. Other folks don't operate in the world of feeling as deeply as we do. And, you know, all of us find what we need to navigate this crazy life. Right. Self-care, you know, it's, it's so important as we learn, as we get older. I'm curious about the support group. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to let listeners know, like for me, it's, it's simply a curiosity thing. Like, you know, I'm wondering you know, what kind of experience in that group is unique to lesbians who've had cancer. And if it's, if, if it's not something you can describe, if, if it's just there for y'all of you and present for you, or if you already described it when you said, you know, reading about a woman and her husband, if it's just that context, you know, I get it. It's just, I'm, I'm just, I'm, what I'm curious about is, you know, the, the, the positive support and the benefit that it provides. Right. So um, trying to think of a, of a recent example, we had a, a woman join the group whose wife was going through cancer treatment. And so the caregiver was the one who joined the group and they live in a, rural area in a country in Europe and had to travel pretty far to a more urban area for treatment and had to really educate the healthcare providers about why it was important for the patient to have her spouse in the room. Mm. Um, because sure. oftentimes healthcare providers might might in their mind they just frame you as a friend or a supportive friend or a close friend but they would never challenge a woman having her husband in the room right so a, so a lesbian couple might have to spend more time convincing their healthcare providers that it's important for the for the partner to be there and it's important for the partner to get emotional support mm -hmm. also um yes. so i was very lucky when i was diagnosed we we happened upon this surgeon who is really okay with whatever configuration of family a patient brings into her waiting room, whether it's their wife or their husband or their live-in or, you know, their stepchild, it doesn't matter to her. And the hospital I went at also had a very gay positive environment. So there was no challenge to my wife being in the ICU with me the first night. There was none of that that I've heard other women go through. And so it's important to have a place where you can go to get support around how hard it is just to be educating other people all the time about why your relationship matters. And uh, I think that's one of the things that they get from our group is they get to get that 
validation that that's a crappy thing to have to do mm. in addition to negotiating cancer, in addition to negotiating insurance, in addition to all those things. Sometimes you have supportive extended families, but sometimes you don't because they're alienated because of your being a lesbian. Like there are all these scenarios that wouldn't happen to you if you were heterosexual. And so. Gotcha. And so what I'm hearing is that, you know, just one area of support is being alienated by doctors and medical establishments and having to go through the process of explaining who you are and why you matter and why you should be there. And the frustration when you see other people walking in, no one's questioning our relationship and why we're there. Right. Like this is the right. person I want with me. It yeah, should be, that wife. should be this enough. It should, it should be enough. Right. It should I be mean, in, in many other ways, cancer is not that different at all based on your sexual orientation. It doesn't really matter when it comes to surgery or choosing treatment. It does sometimes matter when it comes to choosing whether or not to have reconstruction because some women will encounter providers and surgeons who think that you're crazy to not want reconstruction of some kind. And so they might have to really go to battle for their own right to not have breasts. That's a whole nother thing. Um, I wrote actually a journal article about that because I did a survey, not of women in my support group, but of women in general in social media. I did a survey and I found that women who choose to go flat often get resistance from their providers for that choice. Like they think that they'll change their mind later. One woman was told that her surgeon thought she would have gender confusion. And so he wouldn't recommend a support group gender because confusion, so he didn't want her to be confused group yep mm -hmm. sir my breasts do not make <laughs> me a woman it is a no like breasts are no breasts oh my right. goodness and and i have a friend who had uh implants put in after her surgery she was my very first podcast guest and she got so sick from the implants that she had them removed and now she is flat and she's so much happier and there are you know there are aspects that she talks about of, of navigating life you know not having breasts at all being completely right. flat and it works for her it completely works for her and a lot of women make that choice heterosexual lesbian bisexual a lot of women make that choice and it works for them and for any healthcare provider to say, you know, if you're going to have to make this choice, I'm definitely not going to send you to support group on top of it because that'll only make you worse. Oh my goodness. <laughs> no, I have a, I had a different guest and after her surgeries, she looked in the mirror and she didn't have her breasts and she had her scars and she didn't have her hair. And she just was like, am I even a woman? And then it just, she had this surge of awareness and she's like, you're damn right. I'm a woman. None of this makes me a woman. Zero. Right. I am a woman, period. And anybody who can't get that, that's on them. Right. I remember having a conversation with my sister after I had my hysterectomy. So it didn't come up so much around my breasts, but I do have a funny story about that. I'll tell you in a minute, but it came up for me emotionally around having a hysterectomy. I said to my sister, you know, all the parts that made me a woman are gone. It was a low moment. And yeah. I said, all the parts that made me a woman are gone. I don't really know what I am. And she said to me, it was so perfect. She said, when you talk to transgender women, do you think they're less of a woman than you? And I'm like, no, she said, no. And they don't have a uterus either. <laughs> 
And she goes, and then you have friends who are trans men who have a uterus, but you don't think that makes them less of a man. It's, it's who you, it's who you are in your mind. It's not what your body says you are. It's what your mind says you are. And in your mind, you are a woman. That's all that matters. And I was like, that is correct. And unexpected coming from her because she's not gay or lesbian or trans or mm-hmm. anything like that but she has plenty of people around her who are and she has the appropriate thinking it was a good reminder i'll tell you the other story i have is a funny good story for her. good for her she's great she's also really good if you're worrying about your your potential mortality she's great at reminding me that uh you could also get hit by a bus anyone could get hit by a bus so when I was really struggling in chemo, I would call her up and I would say, tell me the story again about how you could die in an accident because it made me feel better to know that she also could die any minute. So I was like, okay, that's good. Um, so I had this story. Before I was diagnosed, I applied to go to this uh, educational seminar in Santa Monica on um, dementia and aging. And I went, it was the month after I finished chemo. So I, when I went, I had a friend travel with me because I couldn't I couldn't move my own luggage. I couldn't lift anything or pull anything. And I couldn't even walk straight, as I said before. So she really helped me make sure I always got the disability services I needed at the airports. And she put my luggage in the overhead bin and all this stuff. And, and she even helped me get dressed and undressed. So we went to this trip and I went to this seminar and it was on, um, we we're talking to medical specialists on the biologies of dementia. And at one point, this guy was talking about dementia, but he had this aside where he said, you know, the only difference between mammals and other animals is they have hair and they have nipples. And I was sitting there with my bandana on because I was bald from chemo and my nipples were removed uh, during the surgery and I still don't have any, but I was sitting there in this room full of people who didn't know me. And I, in my mind, I was just like, oh my God, that is hilarious. Like, what am I now? Like a reptile? So I went back, I was, and I thought it was funny. So I went back to the hotel room at the end of the day and my friend said, oh my God, thank God you were having a good day when he said that to you. Because if you were depressed, forget about it. But it was funny because I was having- hysterical. You're like, um, no. <laughs> a- I'm still a mammal. Am I not still a mammal? <laughs> my lack of nipples. Hairless, nippless. Yes, hairless and nippless, <laughs> and I am still a mammal. I believe oh, this is hysterical. true. Yeah, it I was, was waiting for you to tell me that you jumped up and said, "Not true." <laughs> no, in a room full of strangers, I thought it would be better to just keep it to myself. But it was very hard not to start laughing. Oh, that's so great! Oh my goodness. Yeah. I love it. So, I do want to ask you. How was the recurrence discovered? I imagine it was a scan or blood work. Yeah, so I went for my, so after the first cancer, I went back, well, in the first year, I went back every three months or whatever. But after that, Mm -hmm. I I went back once a year for a mammogram. I didn't even have blood work because it had not been invasive. So there was no reason to test my blood. So I just went back for a mammogram. And I went back for my fifth year follow-up mammogram and it seemed that everything was normal. And so after a couple of weeks, I remember I sent my siblings an email and I said, I had another clear mammogram. So I'm five years out, which is the magic number when you don't have, um, well, it's the magic number if you don't have an estrogen positive cancer, but I didn't know that then. So I had estrogen positive cancer, but mm. I thought five years was the magic mark. So I was like, I, I hit the five-year mark. I'm good to go. 
And then like two weeks later, my surgeon calls me and said, you know, Maria, there's this abnormally dense area. We need to look at it more closely. And it started the whole train again. And every, and as soon as I got off the phone, I was like, I had this feeling of dread. And then I went ahead with the next test and I went ahead with the next test and the dread just kept growing until it turned out I had cancer again. Mm -hmm. But it's why I always tell people it's really important if you're, if your doctors recommend routine follow-up that you get routine follow-up because it's, it's there to catch anything that changes in your health. And without it, you could have, when you can have cancer and not know about it for months or years. And then by then it can be far too late. I remember a few years ago, we had a professor retire and she was a 20 year breast cancer survivor. Only, I don't know that anyone really knew that about her because it was so Mm -hmm. far in her history. She never talked about it. She moved to her retirement home. And one day she just collapsed and died in her living room. And she turns out her cancer had come back and she was completely riddled with breast cancer and had not been apparently seeing anyone about it or getting routine follow-ups or anything. Like, I don't know how that could have happened if she was getting routine medical care. Mm. So, so I'm a believer. If my doctors recommend a certain uh, trajectory of follow-up, that I follow that trajectory of follow-up. Absolutely. Me too. And you said five years is not a landmark if it's estrogen positive? Right. So right. I... Okay. I I learned that when I hit the five-year mark after my invasive cancer, my oncologist said, well, that is a five-year is an important number for most breast cancers, but not yours because you're an estrogen receptive breast cancer. So as long as your body produces estrogen, your risk of cancer recurrence remains, Um, which is why we take estrogen blockers and why we get hysterectomies and oophorectomies, which is the removal of your ovaries, because all Mm. those things lead to production of estrogen in your body. So you want to block estrogen as much as possible for that kind of cancer. So that number doesn't, and you never go down to producing zero estrogen in your body either. After Mm -hmm. menopause, you might produce 5% of what a typical woman produces, but you still have that 5%, which can be a fuel for cancer in your body. That's one of the things that changed my approach to the, or say, that's one of the things that changed my concerns about hosting the podcast is I wanted to kind of get some backgrounds on cancer. I quickly was reminded that there are so many cancers, so many types of each cancer that I simply yeah. cannot know. And I don't have yeah. that kind of mind. I am a feeling person. I'm all right. about you know human connection and feeling. If I start reading data, I'll just like keel over. It just doesn't work for me. Yeah. And, uh, I am kind of a data person cause I'm a social scientist and yeah. I, and I, and I, like I'm a, I'm a, I, how do I explain it? The more information I have, I feel like the better prepared I am <laughs> until I have too much and, and then I've gone too far. But like my first diagnosis, I was taking a biology class as a prerequisite to getting into graduate school. Cause as soon as they told me I had cancer, I was like, I'm going back to school. Like the work I'm doing is not meaningful to me. I need to do something better with my life. So I signed up to go to graduate school for my master's in social work. And I had to take this biology class to be able to get in. And so I'm in the biology class. I get, I'm going through this diagnosis. You have to write three papers. All my papers were about breast cancer. Paper one was about how do you, what kind of um, tests do you take to get diagnosed? Paper two was about the types of cancer 
And paper three was about treatment options. I mean, I researched it mm-hmm. literally like academic research to know all my options. And then I had to do something with that information, but I just really, I am a believer in information. So when they come out with new studies about my type of cancer, I will read the scientific journal articles because I've been trained to read them. So I can interpret them and understand if they're even a valid study or if the data is very strong. A lot of these studies are really small samples. And so they're Mm -hmm. not very strong evidence. um, But I read them just to keep myself educated. When they say there may be a blood test out in 10 years that can detect previously undetectable recurrence of breast cancer, I want to know all about that test so that I can go to my doctor and say, Mm -hmm. when are you going to have this test? And uh, perhaps I could be in a clinical trial to be a subject in this test. Like, I want to do that. Um, And not everyone's like that. Some people have cancer and they're just like, give me the bare minimum and let me not think about it so much because their brain just doesn't function well like that or it just makes them so unhappy to think about it that they don't want to go there. Um, But I'm an information gatherer, you know? We're all different as patients. I know women who couldn't tell me the type of cancer, the stage of it. They couldn't tell me the name of their chemo drug. They don't even want to really retain that information after it's been given to them. And that's what they need for their peace of mind. They want to put all their trust in their provider Mm -hmm. and that's okay. That's what they need to do. I want to trust my provider, but I, first I want them to prove to me that they know everything they need to know about my care, you know, but after that, I'll trust them, but everyone's different. Yeah, my trust came from uh, getting second and third diagnoses and just right. feeling the people out, you know? Uh, yeah. For myself, the first time I was diagnosed, I did some research, but then, you know, I was married at the time. My wife did phenomenal research. You know, what I would find in three hours, she found that in the first 10 minutes. And, you know, she's phenomenal that way. And and we're still friends. And we haven't been together in, God, 10 years. And... uh she still will do research for me when I have a concern, you know, but I, I did do it the first time. The second time I was just like, I was at Memorial Sloan Kettering and I'm like, I was so blown away by who my oncologist was and how anytime I had a question, you know, they had the answers, the explanations. I got really clear, really fast. Like, you know, I can just allow my lack of research skills to be okay. And just be with this. I didn't. I didn't pay any mind to it. However, when my mom fell and she had to have surgery, my siblings and I, we had a concern about uh, post-operative cognitive disorder. You know, she's yeah. eighty-three, and I've had. You've had anesthesia. I've had anesthesia a few times. Right. It, it takes something to recover from it. Well, and the older you are, the longer it takes to recover, and the more likely you're at risk of having delirium. Um, mm-hmm. yes. and the, and the physical inactivity in older adults can affect their cognitive functioning. I mean, I remember a friend of mine who's 86, 87 now, and she had a, a knee replacement done like seven or eight years ago and she's sharp as a tack, you know, but mm-hmm. her mom had dementia many, many years ago. And so she was after her surgery, her, her memory was unclear. Her reaction times, her cognitive functioning was very impaired by, first the anesthesia and then the inactivity. And she was very concerned about herself. Like she was like, am I turning a corner and I don't even know it. Mm-hmm. And that kind of co- 
complicated everything in her recovery. And it took her a couple months out from her knee replacement to start to feel like her normal self cognitively again. And it was very stressful for her. And, and the older we get, the easier it is to get kind of sidetracked by your body and your mind connection. You know, yes, it's a real thing. It is. Our father had his hip replaced. And when he came out of his surgery, he was so out of it. He'd already had, you know, what appeared to be a slight dementia. I don't clearly I mean, that's not the technical term, but in our world, it was, you know, it was obvious that his mind was uh, deteriorating his cognitive ability. And when he came out of the surgery, he wasn't making sense. He didn't understand a lot of things, and he never came home. Right. He went to rehab, and then he went to a nursing home and lived in the dementia unit because he could not live. You know, with my stepmom, that just you know, no matter who was there and what kind of setup we had, it just was not going to work. He was completely right. out of it, and it was heartbreaking, so heartbreaking. We lost him in an instant, and uh, so for my mom to go in, we just had that worry and that concern. And my sister's neighbor had uh, recommended, I believe it's called propofol fentanyl, or just referred to as propofol. Mm -hmm. And me not being research guy, I was all over the computer just reading about, you know, um, general anesthesia and the elderly and propofol and everything that came up on propofol said, yes, this is what is recommended. This is uh, causing fewer cases of pneumonia. The, um, you know, the, the cognitive bounce back is more rapid. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we... Well, the short of it is my stepfather had a conversation with the surgeon and then the anesthesiologist. And the anesthesiologist said, yes, we, I'm using propofol. And it was just so reassuring because you have no control and you don't know how it's going to turn out. But, right. you know, we, we wanted to know. And I was kind of fascinated by, for myself, you know, my ability or an interest in research is not that strong. But when it was my mom, boy, I was like all over the the internet is scouring it for information. And, and you're right, there'd be one bit of research that said, you know, 20 people were tested, you know, I was just like, 20 people? What? Right. Like, I'm not reading this one. <laughs> but, you know, I get that there was something to it and it provided, you know, a step forward in some direction. But it was really, uh, it was really uh, interesting to suddenly have that uh, research instinct popped live when it was my mom, you know? Right. And I spoke to her after the surgery, and I spoke to her yesterday, and she's sounding great. And I've, I've spoken to her before after surgery, and, you know, as I did, you know, she sounded pretty out of it. But then again, you know, different times, different forms of anesthesia. Um, may I ask a question about how life may have been different following the hysterectomy? You comfortable asking that, answering that question? Sure. Um, so the, the in the year between... Uh, being put on tamoxifen and having the hysterectomy, I had, I mean, I was 42 when I got put on tamoxifen. So I went from having routine periods to not having any periods at all because tamoxifen is, it, it blocks estrogen from affecting your organs and estrogen is what causes you to have your monthly cycle. Okay. But it also acts like estrogen at the same time. It's like an estrogen replacement in some ways. And one of the things that it does is it it can grow polyps inside your uterus. Polyps are just as they are in your colon, they're precancerous abnormalities. 
And so in my body, I started growing polyps right away. So I didn't have periods, but then every like six months, I would have this unbelievably painful, heavy period, which kept me from even leaving the house. Um, and I'd be wearing, I'd be using like super pads and super tampons at the same time and still bleeding through. It was horrible. Mm. I couldn't even leave the the proximity of the bathroom. Like I'd be with like the couch was like oh, wow. five seconds away from the toilet. And that's about as far as I could go on those days. And I complained to my gynecologist the first time it happened and they did a transvaginal ultrasound, which is the wand. Mm. I'm sure you've had one. <laughs> Being well, I, I have, yeah. <laughs> but they have this wand that they I put did in have a my, wand in my behind when I got diagnosed the first time. It's similar, but it's in your vagina. Very different. I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) Okay. Um, And so they do the ultrasound from the inside of your vagina out, and they can get a much better view of what's happening with your ovaries and your uterus that way. Mm. But they can't see inside your uterus. So she would see that I had, um, it looked like my uterus wasn't smooth on the around like it should, like it was maybe lumpy. And so she was like, you might have polyps, so I'm going to send you to this guy who does uh, DNC scrapes of the inside of the uterus. And so he was a gynecologic oncologist and he went in three different times in a year and a half and did DNCs. And the third time we had agreed after the second time, if this happens again, we're going to do a full hysterectomy. And then it happened again. Mm. So he said, okay, now we're going to do the hysterectomy. And now I'm one of those people, Bert, I've never had kids. I never wanted to have kids. And so for me, the way that I framed it in my mind is I've been maintaining the plumbing that I didn't want to use. So I didn't have any emotional or psychological barriers to having a full hysterectomy. I was like, it's an inconvenience and also a threat to my health to have my uterus keep generating these abnormal cells. Eventually those will turn into uterine cancer. Ah, okay. So I was just, and going on to, into early menopause through tamoxifen can also increase your risk of cervical cancer. And so I was like, I'm ready to just remove all the risks. And so we did it. We went in and did a, what they call a vaginal hysterectomy, where they pull all of the equipment out down through your vagina, and then they remove your cervix and sew you up at the top. So you still have a vagina, but you don't have anything else. Wow. And, um, wow. and they put, they put stitches in place to to hold the structure up. And some women will have prolapse, but I have not had prolapse. So I've had no problems since I had that procedure done. And I was out of the hospital the next morning. The only reason I even stayed overnight was because they did it so late in the day. And uh, and I was out the next morning and three days later, I was walking the mall and I was fine. Mm. So in terms of all my surgical experiences, my recovery was most quick from that because it was not what they call an open hysterectomy where they cut your your abdomen it was just all done by pulling it out through my vagina Mm. so i did have some sort of after effect like emotionally am i really a woman i told you about that earlier but i didn't have any sort of um regret about not having kids i didn't i didn't have any plans that got derailed because i thought i'd have kids like i never wanted kids so it was really easy for me to do it compared to women who had plans to have children and then suddenly couldn't that's a whole different scenario i wasn't in that position oh i'm happy to hear it went with such ease it was it was the only surgery i woke up from happy well that's (laughs) not true because when i woke up from my 
my um, lymph node resection, they told me that my nodes were negative. I was ecstatic. I almost jumped off the gurney and I had, they had to restrain me because I was too out of it to be jumping off the gurney in the hallway while it's moving. But I was like, I got to go tell Mary. Oh. <laughs> but the hysterectomy, I woke up and I was just like, well, that's done. Now I can just move on with my life and not worry about what's going on inside because it's very, dis it's very disruptive to have, uh, you know, your, your monthly cycles affected in such a way and the inconvenience and pain of it was just very disruptive. So your monthly cycle affected those, those six months periods where there'd be the, uh, the pain and not being yeah. able to step away from the bathroom. And then what really struck me is you speak of how your uterus was changing and how abnormal cells are being created. And it just hit me like, okay, like I don't have that. Like as I reflect in my own experience, you know, and I can imagine if like since I had rectal cancer, um, you know, I, I had a, a metastasis to my liver, but still, you know, primarily what I think about is the rectal cancer because that's where it all began and I have the colostomy. And if I had doctors telling me that my large intestine was changing shape and, uh, you know, there were abnormal cells being created and they were concerned right about your you know, treatment for the one is causing your risk for the other one yeah yeah I, that's I, not good i can hear the relief that you just had it removed You're like okay that is gone yeah that concern is gone yeah it was it, it was fantastic it was a fantastic experience to have it done i just was really happy which isn't you know my sister had to have a hysterectomy. She had to have an open hysterectomy because she had a massive growth on her uterus that was benign, but still it was very disruptive in terms of recovery time. And in terms of, um, she never wanted to have any more kids, but she did really, she was very emotionally attached to the idea of she could have kids if she wanted to, you know, that she had some sort of control over that choice. And then suddenly the, 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 vagaries of a woman's reproductive system took away the control over her choice she had a hard time with it but yeah. i did not because yeah. it's never a choice i wanted so yeah, well that makes sense that she would have that uh, concern like i have yeah. a child and i have a son and a stepson and after the radiation treatments for the rectal cancer like they told me that it's highly unlikely that i was going to uh, be able to have children again and uh asked me if I wanted to, you know, uh, you know, collect sperm for the sperm bank. And I talked to my wife. I'm like, no, I mean, she's like, I'm not having any more kids. So <laughs> I'm not sure what you're going to do with it. Right. And, and I was good. I was good. But I was, you know, it's, uh, I imagine it's really got to be difficult to, to have that choice no longer exist for you. Yeah. And I've certainly read enough stories. I haven't known anyone personally who was diagnosed with breast cancer while pregnant or who was trying to get pregnant and had breast cancer, but I've read plenty of stories where that has happened to women and it can, it can ruin your dreams of having babies mm. and not having been one who dreamed of having babies. I, I don't really identify a hundred percent with that experience, but watching my close friends and family struggle with infertility, I know how devastating it can be if you can't have the babies you want. And um, 
So it's just, it's just an added layer of loss. And I just am glad I didn't have the added layer. Yeah. And let's, uh, on that note, encourage people, you know, encourage awareness. And, uh, you know, the more, the more people can be in tune with their bodies and, uh, you know, get the tests that are available to us as they are, are, are made available, you mm-hmm. know, be it a colonoscopy or a mammogram or whatever they are. It's, uh, this yep. is the kind of diagnosis and experience that, you know, the sooner you can uh, become aware of it, um, the greater possibility of you having a healthy, intact body. And, uh, and a longer life. And a longer life. The, the important thing we need to know is that uh, most insurances cover these sort of preventive screenings, but less than like 80 or 90% of people actually get them. So there's a good proportion of people out there who don't get these annual preventive screenings that could really make a difference and would be, a, it's a minor inconvenience for the potential it has to save your life. Yeah, it is. It, exactly. And, and your doctor may not recommend it. Right. You might have to ask for it uh, because they might not think it's important enough to recommend. Yeah. I've only ever had one doctor that had her mind on everything I was dealing with. You know, most situations, you know, uh, my post uh, cancer uh, treatment, you know, the care that I needed to recover from the treatment. Uh, you know, I was having, um, Issues with, uh, with, you know, just running out of uh, energy and having difficulty breathing. Not difficulty breathing, but I was just, I was tired. I, I had difficulty breathing from, it was from, I'm confusing two things or, or collapsing two together. I had a pulmonary embolism from the chemotherapy. Oh, my. It was from the chemotherapy, yeah. And uh, that was making me tired just from walking down, you know, through the neighborhood. But after all of that, it was difficult for me to do much without getting tired. I felt like getting exhausted. And uh, I had many tests done. I went to a pulmonologist, and then I went to a cardiologist, and each one of them said, well, your heart's fine. Well, your lungs are fine. So I'm waiting for them to tell me what to do next. Nobody said anything. So I had learned through a cancer diagnosis and having lots of practice to say to the doc, okay, great. I got it. You didn't find anything. So if you were in my shoes, what would you do next? They'd say, oh, well, I'd go do X, Y, and Z. And I want everyone listening who's new to this, like over and over and over, I said to the different doc, the pulmonologist, the cardiologist, okay, so great, you didn't find anything. If you were in my position, what would you do next? And I kept pursuing it and pursuing it until finally going back and forth, getting more scans and ultrasounds on my heart and breathing tests to the pulmonologist. The pulmonologist finally put me on a bicycle with a breathing, uh, um, with with a, you know, looked like a respirator and, 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 it, and it tested the pressure of the air coming out of my lungs, I believe. Um, they, they were monitoring my heart, uh, everything. They put me on this bicycle and had me just pedal until I could pedal no more. And when they were done, they said, your heart is great, super healthy. Your lungs are great. They're super healthy. And you clearly are just suffering from what's considered a systemic atrophy. Your body has just adjusted to this uh, sedentary lifestyle that has been a result of your treatment. 
Yeah. And I went to physical therapy and strengthened my body through the practices and the exercises. I don't know where it would have gotten if I didn't just keep pushing and pushing and pushing for answers. You know, I think you were young when you were diagnosed. You were very young. And uh, I think that most people get diagnosed and treated for cancer when we're middle-aged. So maybe 10 or 15 or 20 years older maybe than you were. And, and a lot of folks who've been through cancer have that sort of treatment-related fatigue that lingers after treatment is over. And they don't challenge it or question it very much because they're already older and they think it's just that they're getting older. But really, I remember I read a book when I was going through treatment that said, it was written by a woman who was a breast cancer survivor and a physician, a medical doctor. And she said that everyone focuses on that year when you're going through treatment, the surgeries and the chemo and all that. But the really difficult year is the year after treatment is over when you, you have to work so hard to get your body back to where it was before treatment. Not so much it's going to look the same, but that you're going to have that same kind of energy and ability as you did before. And most people, when they're, when they're middle-aged, they gain weight during treatment because they're sedentary and they just think, oh, now I'm just going to be heavier because I'm middle-aged. And they say that one of the side effects of tamoxifen and other estrogen blockers is bone pain in your joints and weight gain and fatigue. But my oncologist said to me very early on, he said, women don't get heavier because they're on tamoxifen. They get heavier because they're on the couch. Mm. So you need to get off the couch. And even during chemo, I had to walk further and further every day to kind of get my body moving because fatigue is crushing. And when, when you're done feeling sick, you don't want to feel sick. You want to feel better. And so you have to really work to get your body back to any sort of level of physical capability you had before. And some people don't ever get back there because they give up trying. It's a, it's a long battle. It can yeah, be a long Maria. battle. Yeah. I was so sick. I was so sick from the chemotherapy that I didn't exercise for six months. I yeah. didn't get off the couch because it stuff just laid me out. And uh, it took a lot to recover, you know, and I went to physical therapy and I got better and I walked uh, the dog and got exercise. And then um, a handful of years ago, um, I walked up the stairs of a beautiful local state park called uh, Buttermilk Falls State Park. And I, I know buttermilk falls. Those it, stairs that go up the side of the waterfall. Yeah. They're very steep. They're really steep. And I had to stop like four and five times to catch my breath. And I just persisted. And by the end of one summer, I was able to walk. Because I walked the stairs almost every day. And by the end of one summer, I was able to walk to the top without stopping. And eventually I could walk to the top, you know, just, I mean, with energy. And right. But it took so much, it took so much to get back there because of what my body's been through. And now that I don't walk it as frequently, there'll be this initial like, you know, just hurt and discomfort in the muscles and the lungs. And then after a few minutes, I just persist through that and it all fades away. And then I start to feel good and feel well. And so it's resulted in my having a quicker 
return to familiarity, I guess, with that kind of exercise. But prior right. to doing the walks every day, it's taken a lot to rebuild my body and to and to bring it back to, I, I mean, I don't think it's back to what it once was, but to bring it to what it can be at this point in my life, you know? And, yeah, uh, to bring it to where you feel comfortable, you have enough function that you can enjoy doing what you want to do in your life. Yeah. That's important. With the the winter after I finished treatment, we went out and we bought snowshoes mm -hmm. um, because I was still trying to build my abdominal muscles back. First, there's this struggle to get standing upright. And then there's to find any strength in your core or any ability. Like walking can be exhausting because you have to keep lifting your knees up and you use your core to do that. So we went and we got these snowshoes and we started snowshoeing and I couldn't even snowshoe like for 15 minutes when it first started. Cause it's a lot of work to snowshoe, mm. uh, but it was a really good plan for getting back my abdominal strength because you really have to work your core to do it. And so we would go down to this place called Mohonk mountain in the Catskills. Love it. It's, it's a, you've, you've been there. I used to live at the bottom of the mountain in Gardner, New York, when I, I did a semester uh, in New Pulse. The, the manicured trails behind the castle are just really great for snowshoeing in the winter because they're, it's all uphill, downhill. You really work hard and there's plenty of distance to go. You don't run out of a trail for a long time. And uh, we'd go down there and hike during the summer. We'd go down there and snowshoe during the winter. It was a really great way to get to build my strength back up, which is important to do because you don't want to be spending your life always fatigued by the simplest things. Mm. Good for you. And it's yeah. beautiful out there. And like you said, you you know, looking up lifts your mood and you yeah. got to be outside and it was great. the fresh air on the sky. That's wonderful. Ah, Maria, it's been great having you on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been fun talking to you. You're welcome. Have a great day. You too. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's show. Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of Saint Kid. You can find him on social media as The Saint Kid. See you all on the next episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are currently seeking funding through a foundation or advertising. In the meantime, this podcast is funded through a combination of community support and my own personal contributions. If you would like to contribute to the podcast so we can continue to bring episodes to you and people around the world, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash but seriously the cancer podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The hosts and guests are not medical professionals, and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.